0: I'm not on. There we go. But then there. There we go. No, it's my fault. I had it on uh, pause. <laughs> Test. <laughs> so now I can. Now, hear you. so we're in house. Yeah, go back down to where you were <laughs> before. Okay. That okay. was all my fault. I thought I was- no, good call, Gail. We might as well, what? What? <laughs> Just kidding. So, a little lower in here, in-house, scale. Test one, two. (laughs) Test one, two. Sorry. (sighs) Uh, uh, Yeah. Does that sound good, Deb? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one website had the nail. I never thought of that. Somebody invented the nail. I think it's a pretty important invention. Optical lenses, gunpowder, printing press was on that one. Steam engine was on that one too. Um, and then I, I looked at another one just to round this out. Somebody had posted that the or had put on their list that the plow uh, and cement. Right? Somebody had to invent cement. I don't know. So yeah, important stuff. Uh, the wheels always up there is one or two. Oh, here's my. You know, I had to find a wheel cartoon. Uh, That's Gary Larson. He does Farside. Farside is just a great, funny cartoon. Uh, Anyway, uh, so if you're listening and you can't see at home, well, you just have to go look up funny cartoons on your own. Um, Now, the the reason I bring this up is always I try to relate something to what we're going to study. And today is the fruit that is produced in the life of the believer uh, that is going to come from our change. Uh, All of us need to change, as as we know. All of us have to grow and change. And real change is going to produce real uh, action that is, and that's what I uh, entitled this message, when you really change, you change what you do. Uh, And John the Baptist in his ministry is going to make a point out of that. And that is, and it's not new to John, it's, all, it's in the Old Testament as well, that when God um, criticized and condemned the Israelites for worshiping him with word only. And so they're, they're, they worshiped them with their lips, but not their heart. And John's going to make an issue out of that too. And all of us, it is, God has a uh, very heavy emphasis on fruit production in the believer, and that's Old Testament and New. It's an image that's used throughout the Scripture. And so, first up, we're going to have to make sure we look at what fruit is. And that's why I came. I thought of inventions. You know, what would be the fruit of say uh, Thomas Edison who invents the light bulb, or I don't know who invented the wheel. I'm sure that was pretty early on. Uh, the uh, the idea of you know the world starting out with cavemen is not a biblical one. Uh, you know. <laughs> The world started out with the descendants of Adam, and they lived a long time, and they were brilliant. So I'm sure they came up with a wheel lickety-split if they, you know, they needed to. They're brilliant people. Um, so most of us, I think 99.9% of the people in this world are not going to produce inventions in their lives that, that are going to change the world. Whether the great invention of the microprocessor or microchip that makes all our smartphones and computers and the internet work like um, you know, an invention like that is not going to come around every day. Most of us have don't do this. Ninety nine point nine percent of us are not gonna invent anything at all. But all of us want our lives to count for something. That's true of every human being. We want our lives to count for something. A lot of people, they just give up on that because they've tried it and they've had multiple failures, dreams that have been broken, parades that have been rained on, failure after failure, and they just give up on that whole aspect. But we as believers must never give up on that. Our Our lives do have to count for something. And none of us are going to have it, though, without true change. And that's what John, and that's what we're going to look at today. True change that produces the fruit. The fruit is the fruit of God. So let's open up in prayer. We'll go to Matthew 3, start in verse 7. Let's open up in prayer, and let's be grateful and thankful for God's Word. Every line in His Word has something for us to learn, and uh, each of which is of extreme importance. And so with... um, Humility in mind, let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to be together and to learn your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can uh, all learn from it, who are your believers, because you have given us your spirit, and your spirit is within us. In this age, all who have believed in Christ are baptized by the Spirit. What a gift. We are all extremely gifted. And having that gift, Father, we can learn from your word. Every one of us, there's no special learners, uh, no elite learners. All of us are believers who can learn. And so, Father, we turn to your word and ask that through your Spirit that these things that are in this passage would speak to each of us and teach what you would have us know. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So repentance is a word that means to change. Uh, That's technically what it means at base. It means to turn around. In the context of God's word, it would always mean to turn your attitude because repentance is always within. And it means to turn your attitude or your thinking Towards God. Uh, there are many areas of repentance. There isn't just one. For the unbeliever to repent about the gospel, meaning to change his attitude towards Jesus Christ, is a one-time-in-life event. Uh, we don't have to believe again and again to receive the benefits of salvation. Uh, However, even after, the unbeliever is going to repent of many things. I mean, we're all changing our minds all the time. Um, Some of these changes are far more important than others. After you're a believer, you continue the repentance process. Uh, You learn about yourself from the Word of God. You learn you have to change. Every one of us has to change. There's attitudes within us that have to change. There's behaviors in us that have to change. There's conclusions that we have that we think we're right that have to change. Uh, our maturity has to change. We have to become mature. Uh, so this change is for us to produce fruit. And this fruit God defines for us, fortunately. And uh, it is, if you have a life that's filled with divine fruit, and you know, fruit, of course, is a tangible physical thing that you can go to the supermarket and buy. Uh, obviously, fruit here is a metaphor for the production of something. And the divine fruit that exists uh, is in the scripture that God wants for us is the acts, acts of God. So uh, they are described as things like love and joy and peace, They're not defined as particular items of work, meaning move that thing, that particular thing from here to there, Uh, you might be doing that to actually help someone whom you love. Uh, There's work to do. You might be actually handing over some money, which is technically a work. Uh, What I mean by that in a physical sense, Uh, work is defined by uh, force times distance. So you use a force to move a thing from point A to point B. Technically, that's work. And you do that, but... You know, you could do that without divine fruit. You give money to somebody, you give money to a creditor, or you could just give money to somebody because you feel guilty or for whatever. Uh, You know, and the the inner part of you is not actually producing fruit. So God uh, gives us fruit to produce so that our life is like him. Our existence is like him. And this has been playing on my heart a lot lately as Uh, I come across, and as I continue to read the scripture, uh, there's more often I'm asking myself, why does God want us to do this? You know, for instance, why does God want us to love? Why does God want us to be uh, kind towards other people? If we're not kind towards other people, does the whole plan of God fall apart? I mean, there's a lot of unkind people on this earth, and the plan of God chugs along just as God has willed it to. Uh so, you know, you know, when you think about why do I do what I do? And then the next thought that comes to me is why does God do, do what he does? Why does he do it? Why does God do what he does? God, of course, is very unlike us in many ways. And unlike us, God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need the response of someone. So oftentimes we'll do things for people because we want them to respond in a certain way. And so in essence, we're doing it for ourselves. Um, but God needs nothing. He does not need us to worship him. He does not need us to honor him. He doesn't need anybody to recognize him at all. So why does he do what he does? Why does he produce things? And that's actually what we're getting after uh, when we are looking into what the spiritual life is. There's a reason why we do what we do. There's a reason why um, that we uh, long to do the things that we should. And if if our hearts are changed properly, we'll actually see that and see that reason. And that's a game changer if you see that reason. Um, It's not just going through the motions. What's the matter, Gail? We're off again? You're pointing to your ears. I don't know what that means. ay yeah, yeah. What have Is it on? I see a signal there. Test one. Yeah, there's a signal. All right. So you can't hear me? Okay. Um, where's your volume for in here? Is this one? Yeah. Test 1-2, test 1-2. <clears throat> test 1-2, test 1-2. I don't know. We're just going to have to go with it. Okay. Which one's ahead. the in-house? This one? Yeah. All right. We'll go up on that a little. Uh, I mean, as long as it's going on the recording. Yeah. We can mess with it later because we'll be, we're recording now, aren't we? Yeah, okay. Sorry, everybody. You're going to have to edit your own class. We have constant sound issues. It's funny uh, the, if you want to know, if, if you're a listener and you're like, what in the world do you guys do? Uh, first off, we have no idea what we do. <laughs> But uh, the sound will be fine for weeks and weeks, and then it'll just suddenly change. Something either shuts off, something shorts out, or I don't know what happens, but we don't have, you know, if you know a good sound engineer uh, and you want to fly him out here or find, I called a sound engineer uh, last week, and he didn't return my call, so, and then I got occupied with other things, but. We soldier on. Uh, so, continuing. Now we're in Matthew chapter 3. You know, And the, the thought that I left with there was, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? And uh, this extre- helps extremely when you want to really change. And we know, all of us know that we have to in many ways. So, uh, when you really change, you change what you do. And that's what John gets at here. So, look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Very diplomatic, John is, right? I mean, he comes right out with it. A brood of vipers is a group of snakes. And he war- who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. I love how John here is not at all like, "Ooh, look, the Pharisees are here. The Pharisees are here. Let's, you know, let's incorporate them. Let them feel, make them at home, uh, that kind of thing. But he doesn't do that at all. He gets right to it. And um, so he says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is not just said by John. Not that it would matter. If John said it, it would be true. But it's also a, um, a common theme throughout the scripture. That God demands that we produce fruit. He desires that we do. That we have to have a life that lives. But we turn. It turns out that Scripture is clear to us that none of us can absolutely do nothing. I think even as in God's eyes, when you're doing nothing, you're doing something. You're you're making the choice not to do something, uh, and so it's a kind of fruit, even if it's lame, I suppose. But And then he goes on to say, and I'm going to cover this tomorrow. Mostly we're going to deal with fruit today. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, Abraham is our father, for I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children of Abraham. The reason why he picks stones there is likely that the word for stone and the word for children are real similar in the Hebrew. So it's kind of like a play on words. Uh, But anyway, God can make people out of stones. It's not people that God is pleased with, interested in. I, I shouldn't say that, but um, what, what does God want for each individual human being? And it does, it's not just to exist, but to exist in the life that is God, to exist in the experience that is God. Uh, and so, you know, if, if an unbeliever ends up judged forever, and has not lived the life that God willed, obviously, if they're an unbeliever, then in, in essence they really have done nothing more than a rock would. So then John says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, fire doesn't necessarily mean lake of fire. right? Every, it's an, it, it follows the imagery of a cut down tree, which mostly... In the ancient world, I think in all cases in the ancient world, they'd be burned up. Uh, same in modern times that, you know, where um, you have a burn pile, it's for the purpose of burning. That's what this is. So it's really a reference to a burn pile. The uh, the, the chopping down of the trees we'll get to, it means the end of Jerusalem uh, in terms of in history where it will be destroyed by Rome in AD 70. It's, uh, and, and therefore, it's, um, we'll get to that tomorrow. So, what we want to first off is to look at this intention of the Pharisees to come down to John's baptism. Uh, it says to or for baptism. So, do the Pharisees and Sadducees, are they coming to John to actually be baptized? And that is remember what John's baptism is, is a baptism for the repentance of, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's address to them makes this very unlikely. Are they truly there to be baptized? Well, first off, the people who are there to be baptized in the uh, language in the text of Matthew, they're being baptized, which is a passive form of the verb. So, in the passive voice, the verb means that they're being baptized by John. That word is not used here for the Pharisees and Sadducees. For them, they are coming for baptism. And that's a use of the noun. They're they're not being baptized. They've come for baptism. So, then, um, continuing then, this preposition that's translated for uh, adds to the uh, investigative work, and that is the fact that the preposition is epi. Uh, Epi can, in this case, mean to, so they might have come to the baptism, or they might have come for baptism. Uh, But even if they did, and that's that long explanation that probably made no sense to anybody, mostly myself, that um, are they truly repentant? And the answer would be no. Uh, even if they, even if they came to John and said, yeah, go ahead and dunk us like you've dunked the rest of them, we want to fit in, or for whatever reason they wanted to do it, or could have wanted to do it, they, John's description of them as a brood of vipers means that they do not have the, uh, mind of repentance. And that mind, as he describes here, is bearing fruit. So John brings the language of judgment which is one side of the coin concerning the coming of Christ. When Christ is coming here, the first advent, it's blessing to some and it's judgment to others. And there's going to be a lot of people who are judged uh, in Jerusalem who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah uh when rome destroys jerusalem in 70 ad it we know pretty accurately that about a million people die in the city i, I don't know how they they all squeezed in there because the romans surround, the romans had ransacked the whole countryside and um you know to and they they cannibalized each other because they ran out of food it was awful a million people uh and so at this Prophecy here that the axe is already at the root of the trees is truly going to come true. Um, but as we'll see in our next class, that it was promised that before the coming of the Messiah, there had to be judgment, and uh, we'll see that in various passages. It's going to happen again at the second coming. If, but judge, when when the Messiah comes, it's either blessing or judgment. Both of them have to occur. And there are going to be those who accept him and those who reject him. And those who reject him are going to get judged. Uh, It's no joke, really. And we should have it on our hearts when we are, you know, thinking about that in the world that's around us, especially now during this Christmas season where people are at least at some level thinking of Christ uh, and that your witness to the world is of extreme importance, that the light of Christ should shine through you to all around you, uh, and so, getting back to the Pharisees and Sadducees here, the, the sarcastic image that John uses for them is a group of snakes wriggling away from a fire. And um, you know, so they're there for what reason? Well, what this brings out to us, uh, although you know, uh, Pharisees from 2,000 years ago are, are generally not of uh, on our minds or of great importance to us, but What their attitude is, and their attitude as it was portrayed of all mankind throughout all history, meaning in the Old Testament where it's revealed, is eternal. Uh, the, The attitude, the actions of the Jews or Israel, and again, this is not picking on the Jews. It's just they're the elect people, and they're the ones that are on the pages of Scripture. They represent all mankind. And so we could say as we look at that, all mankind in their idol worship, in their uh, rejection of their creator, in their rejection of the law of their creator, in their rejection of the uh, providence of their creator, and loving their Lord and loving their God, that it's a timeless lesson because mankind never changes. It doesn't matter how many inventions we have or what technology we have. And if you went back in time with your the, the lowest functioning cell phone, you would be a god in the ancient world. There would be no internet for you to work on, I guess. But, you know, it's, it, the fact that we have all that we have and the conveniences we have have not changed mankind one bit and what we truly are at the core of ourselves. And so repentance is true for all of us. And that's what we're going to see today. So, again, in Matthew 3.8, he says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It has to be fruit. Um, repentance is not a matter of words only or ritual only. It's a real change of life. And this is what all of us want. Uh, when you change, you change what you do. This is true of the unbeliever when he believes the gospel. It's true of the believer when he is... Um, believing and through his life, coming to believe, through him or her's life, coming to believe the do- various doctrines that they're learning. So repentance of the unbelievers should produce fruit. And uh, that doesn't matter Jew or Gentile. Look at Acts 26. Go to Acts 26. We're going to jump around a little here in the New Testament. Acts 26:19. So King Agrippa, this is Paul speaking, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. Uh, I should set this up probably that this is the Apostle Paul very soon after he's arrested in Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea and he's being interviewed by the king, uh, the king of, he's not the king of uh, Rome, He's, he's just the king of the province, King Agrippa. And so I did not, Paul says to him, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring, and the heavenly vision there he means is when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So this is very much almost exactly what John says. Uh, And this is to the Gentiles and the Jews that they should repent and turn to God and that would mean their faith in the gospel and therefore, and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, this doesn't mean salvation by works. It's just that Paul is saying, look, if you are born again and saved, this means that you have a new life and that new life should bear the fruit of itself. And we're all called to this. Now, for, you know, Various other theological beliefs like the reformist view, uh, Calvinist view, and many in that arena, they think that if you claim to be a believer but you don't have any deeds or fruits, then you're lying. And, they're, and they immediately say that if you don't have fruit, then you are not a believer, that your faith was um, you deceived yourself, that you didn't really believe or you didn't have a really deep faith and so on. And I I never for the life of me had understood why people even venture into that realm. I mean, I understand that you want Christians as a teacher, as a theologian, as a writer of books. You want Christians to perform fruit. Paul does too. It's obvious here. But in no way can you use it as a dipstick to measure whether a person is a believer or not. I mean, I think it's okay to challenge someone if they are, I mean, actually, we're told to reprove and rebuke. If someone does not have fruit in keeping with the repentance of their salvation, then, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. If God, the Holy Spirit, leads you to challenge them. But to tell people they might not be saved, you know, I don't see how that helps at all. That, But anyway, the point being is that As a believer, you are to produce fruit. You are given this life, and a life is meant to be lived, which is eternal life. Now, so that requires change. We come from being those, as unbelievers, we had nothing to do with God. And now as believers, in a moment, we have everything to do with God. As we saw on Sunday, through the baptism of the Spirit, we're made completely new. Entered into union with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, our sins are completely forgiven. And you know, this makes us completely new, brand new creatures, we're brand new, brand new humanity. And now the entire Bible and its message is for us. There's a lifetime of learning there and a number of commands that we need to follow. That are now ours because we're members of the family, and you know there I'm focusing on the negative. But there's also the great positive, which is the, you're a fellow heir with Christ. You have eternal life. You're adopted and elected and predestined. You're righteous and justified, reconciled to God forever. You can pray anytime, anywhere. Uh, speak to God directly. You're a believer priest. On and on the blessings go. And those together with the many commands that, you know, we might look at as burdensome and the many blessings that we love to rejoice in all though point to a life and that life is meant to be lived. And so to live that life, there's a real change. You now, why does God want us to live this life? I talked about a little bit about this last time. That, you know, why does God, is he trying to show us off? Some parents do this, right? We know parents who say, oh, look at my little boy. Look at my kid. Or they're, you know, they're, they're the kids who's getting base hits at the baseball game or scoring goals at the soccer game. And they're you know, like they want their kid. You know? And it's all for them. Uh, does God want us to show off for him? But like I said, he doesn't need anything. What does God possibly need? He doesn't need us to glorify Him. Uh, so, you know, why does God want us to change? And the reason being is, and and this I, I say this comes from me, but it it comes from me in my exploration of the gospel and of. Um, you know, of the the revelation of the Scripture as I try to understand it myself is that God wants us to be like Him. And, you know, and and I want to, like, stop there and just say, you know, what does God want for me? To be like Him. But, you know, what does He want me to do? The doing is inconsequential because what you have to do and what I have to do You know, they're they're different. And it's not as if God needs us to really do anything. It's not not that he needs it. Um, There's plenty of people doing things that are completely against God. It, It doesn't interrupt his plans at all. But, you know, being like him is living like him, existing like him. God doesn't need to do anything. He exists, right? That's his name. I am that what I am. The I am. He eternally exists. Now, some people eternally exist and do nothing. <laughs> They're like, you know, they sit on the couch and watch TV or, or do absolutely nothing. Um, and, and there's too many people doing that. So you can get away with it in our age, you can be extremely lazy and still survive. Uh, but, you know, God exists in a manner that is, well, you know, how does he describe himself? He exists in a manner that is righteous. He exists in a manner that is wonderful. He exists in a manner that is, is good. And so that's why he, although he doesn't have to do anything, he does plenty because doing is good. Doing is righteous. Righteous. And God wants us to be like him. And in all honesty, I see that as the greatest reward that there is. If I'm like him, if I have his love, if I have his joy and his peace in me, I won't care what I'm doing. doing, But I will do what does he want me to do. And again, he doesn't need me to do it. If it doesn't get done, it's not like his plans are falling apart. But what does he want me to do? He wants me to live like him. He wants me to enjoy life just like him. He wants me to sacrifice like him. He wants me to give like him, and he wants me to reap the rewards of that, because it must be incredibly rewarding. Now, when it so, and to do that, we have to change a lot. This is a whole swaths of us that have parts of us that have to change. And we see change, real change is a burden. I've got to overcome. We know the things. some things are easier to change than others, but the things that are really hard to change are things that are incredibly burdensome. They are things that have been weighing us down. And yeah, we would love to be rid of them, but they are hard to change. When we recognize that as sinners, how much we really do need to change... The fact that we can change and that we will change with God's wisdom and power is a wonderful blessing. And I mean this in terms of having a source of hope. Hope means that I look at the future and say, yeah, you know what I see? A more mature me. And it's and not a fantasy, not a dream. It's a reality. The reality is that I know God is going to change me. I have no doubt he has changed me so far and he'll continue to do so. Now, this doesn't mean that I sit back and do nothing. Of course not. But I know that as I walk with him, plug with him, go with him, learn the scripture as I pray and do all the things that I will eventually come to love to do, that he is going to change me. This past year, I've done some work with addicts, uh, drug, alcohol, pornography, what have you. There's Others as well. But I've done some work with addicts over this past year, and I've seen miracles in people's lives. I've seen their eyes change. I've actually seen people change. It's a Christian group, and Christ has changed them. Not everybody, but I've seen some change. It's changed me, in fact. The group always speaks of this verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, when you became a born-again believer, was that mind in you? No. No, it wasn't. But it can be. And that is a real change. To think like him. And then, when you think like him, you will do what the Father wills you to do. And why will you do that? Because it is the best. It is what God does. And what God does is his existence. What his existence desires to do. So our hope that we'll change gives us happiness now before we've even changed. This confidence in the future. God will change us. And we will bear fruit. And so fruit actually is well, we'll see you you know the list, but let's we'll look at it. The imagery of bearing fruit is also deployed by Jesus's teaching or in Jesus' teaching, sticking in Matthew, go to Matthew chapter seven. Gail, how's our sound doing? I think I'm like, it's good, I'm like hearing things now. I think my mic goes off, and <laughs> all right, excellent. Matthew 7:15, Jesus says, beware. Now, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, as Paul, uh, Paul as Matthew uh, relates it in chapters 5, 6, and 7. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So, every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, that's exactly what John said. The axe is at the root of the trees, and when they're cut down, they'll be thrown into the fire. So then, he says, you'll know them by their fruits. Now, the the false prophets here, he said, you'll know them by their fruits. You just have to wait. And we see this in other passages, especially in the New Testament, where false teachers eventually reveal who they are. Uh, They may teach about love, but they don't love. They may teach about uh, salvation by grace, but they don't believe a lick of it. And you can see it in their lives. So Jesus gives us the sound advice here to just wait around and look. But he's repetitive as well, and obviously on purpose, that, thorns don't produce grapes aren't from thorns figs aren't from thistles bad trees don't produce good fruit good trees don't produce bad fruit he says it in three times um, to get it through our thick minds thick skulls that there's good fruit and bad fruit and he desires for us to produce good fruit and um, I wouldn't take these words to mean that what some people take them to be is that they're going to, again, make a theological grid work about who's a believer and who's not, who's the bad tree, who's the good tree. This is written to you. You can't look around. You're not, Pastor Bob used to say this all the time you're not a fruit inspector. You can't go up to somebody and say, oh, you look like an unbeliever to me. They may look like an unbeliever, but that's not for you to determine. The status of anybody, even a believer, we're not to judge anyone. This is for you and for me. And what is it clearly telling us in a repetitive fashion? That as believers who are united to the vine, right? The vine is a plant and the vine produces fruit. And we're the branches, all believers are branches in the vine. We are to produce fruit. Now, judgment is here, too, because both, whenever we see fruit, there's good and there's bad. Whenever we see fruit in the Scripture, that generally, I, I shouldn't say in every case because I don't think I know every case, but that, um, often in every case we see here that there's a judgment and there's a blessing. To the ones who produce fruit, there's great blessing. To the ones who don't produce fruit, they produce bad fruit, there's judgment. And there's a judgment upon us as well as believers, even though it's not an eternal one. As we know, we will all be judged at the judgment seat of Christ for what we've done. So, go to Matthew twelve thirty three. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak what is good? Now, brood of vipers. Him and what looks very much to be his first cousin, who was John. John the Baptist like to use the same epithet to describe the Pharisees. A group of snakes. Now, This in context is after they had seen Jesus uh, heal or cast the demon out of a deaf and mute man and the crowd started to really lean towards, wow, could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? And the religious leaders said, no, they spread the word that he did his miracles and his work by the power of the devil. And that's when he he said that was an unforgivable sin. But their conclusion was, by the way, back in John, uh, sorry, in Matthew 3 with John the Baptist, that's the first mention of the Pharisees in the whole Bible is in Matthew 3. And notice they, they are presented as hypocrites right off the page, you know, the first time they're mentioned. I think that's done on purpose, but... Here they are as well. That In in front of their eyes is a man who fulfills all their prophecy, who John had come before and told the whole country. Uh, was John's ministry was very, very popular. And they had known, because Jesus speaks to them about John, so all these Pharisees and Sadducees knew John, knew his ministry. They didn't believe in John. And they have seen the miracles. They see a miracle here. And their conclusion is, I mean, it's so obvious. And their conclusion is that he is working for the devil. So their fruit is of the worst kind. But as he says here in verse 33, either make the tree good or and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You see, and that's those are words of repentance. He says make the tree good. You can become a good tree. Not by works. Repentance is an act of faith. You can be a good tree. You can be a bad tree. And then he says to them, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, your bad tree, speak what is good? And then he says, from the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure that which is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure that which is evil. The treasure is the heart. Uh, treasure is the Greek word thesaurus, where we, get our word, where we get thesaurus from, and it means a treasure of words. But in this case, in the Greek, it means a treasure of anything. And it's, this is the treasure of the heart that's in the heart, and what comes out of your heart is exactly what you will say. But uh, you can be a hypocrite, and they are, and many in Israel are fooled by them. I think they're fooling themselves most of all. So he says by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. So it seems here that he states that words do matter. But he has um, normalized this with words that come from the heart. God can see the heart. We can't see the heart of another person. Jesus told us to wait and see the fruit and then we'll know the false teacher. God knows the false teacher immediately. And so the... Uh, God himself sees the heart and from the heart comes either good fruit or bad fruit. So God wants you to walk or to live in the eternal life that he gave you. And that's why he wants you to change. He's not trying to show you off. He's not trying to get things from you. He wants to give you things. He's not trying to uh, get you to do the stuff that he doesn't want to do himself. He wants you to enjoy him, and, and so to live your eternal life with the fruit of it is to truly enjoy life. It's to truly um, uh, even even when you handle sorrow and to handle it properly, to grow and learn and to. Have the wonder of learning more and more of God as you go along in life. And God wants you to live the eternal life that He gave you. Now, continuing with fruit, as Jesus teaches this, is the parable of the sower. Look at Matthew thirteen, twenty three. Now remember, Matthew thirteen is the real center of the whole gospel. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And so I guess it's I've read people try and interpret this, or they have interpreted it. I shouldn't say try. I'm still on the fence about what it means. But it seems to say here that some believers will have more fruit than others. He doesn't condemn. There's no condemnation for the one who has 30. Uh, But anyway, uh, the fact of the matter is that there's good soil, and good soil is the condition by which the word, which in the parable is the seed, produces fruit. And the good soil is a, a heart that has repented, not just when they believe the gospel, but over and over again throughout their Christian lives. For God has brought up to you the need to change, and you have willingly done so. It, it, you kicked and screamed along the way, of course, but um, you did so. As he pulled you along, as he pushed you along, as he motivated you with all kinds of things, including divine discipline, that you changed. And by changing, your soil of your heart becomes of a better quality for the seed that is the Word of God. <clears throat> I found that I've been finding this more and more myself. As the 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 more you want to learn God's word, the more you'll read it as it's to you. In other words, I, from what I do here, I I read the Word of God and study the Word of God to present it. And I've done a lot of that, but and I still do that obviously. But the more I the more I'm learning, the more I'm the less I'm caring about presenting and the more I'm caring about understanding, like it's given to me. And all of us should read God's word in that way. And what does this mean as God is speaking to you? All right. So, um, yeah, so there's, uh, let's see, go to Second uh, Corinthians 5 for the sake of time. I'll skip some of my passages here. We can see, obviously, in the Gospel of Matthew that fruitfulness or fruitlessness are important and one of the many important themes in the Gospel. Uh, Fruitlessness is always centered around judgment. If you're reading about fruitlessness, um, just keep reading or look a little before or, or ahead of that passage and you'll find somewhere, you'll find something of the judgment of God. In 2 Corinthians 5... 10, we have our judgment, which is the judgment of the believer, called the judgment seat of Christ. This is unique. This is not the great white throne judgment, which is in Revelation chapter 20. In the great white throne judgment, all the unbelievers are going to be judged for, and I skipped this passage for time, but it said, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things which are written to, in the books, according to their deeds. To their deeds. So they're, um, they're judged for what they've done. And people play a little bit of game with that and say, well, it's not everything they've done. It's only, you know, uh, you're reading into it more than I want to. As you know, I just want to read and take what the Word of God says. I do not want to put into it anymore by myself. But it says that they're judged according to their deeds. And <clears throat> the same is true for us, except not unto eternal judgment, because when God opens up the book of life right now, if you're a believer, your name is in there. I, I don't know if this is a real book. It might not be. Maybe it is. It would be a really big, I hope it's a really big book. But uh, you know, maybe he can show it to you. You know, I don't know. Maybe you won't. Just the fact that you're there talking to Jesus Christ in your resurrection body will be proof enough. You won't need to see your name in a book. But um, yeah, like when you you were, when you were a kid and you first discovered the uh, the white pages, you know, go look up your name in the white page. Nobody has white pages anymore. But you go and look up your name, and there there you were. I I, I had great fun looking that up. Uh, anyway, 2 Corinthians 5.1. Let's just read this passage in context. That's why I'm starting in verse 1 because the context helps us to see uh, here what this is about. So verse 1, for we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, meaning we die, uh, we have a building from God, a house made a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So this is our eternal dwelling place or resurrection bodies. For indeed in this house we groan, our earthly dwelling, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we having put it on will not be found naked. For indeed while we were in this, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit, gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Now, in, in this case, we find God the Holy Spirit here in this passage, and this connects it wonderfully to our passage back in Matthew three, because Jesus is going to baptize, as John said, one's coming greater one's coming who is greater than me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This, the Holy Spirit given to us is a pledge of our election. Now, I know you can't see the Spirit inside of you. You can't get an x-ray and see him. But the Spirit is in you to give you that tremendous, 100% confidence that you're a born-again believer. You know this to be true, no matter how many Reformed theologians want to tell you that you're not or that salvation is about works, or that you can't know until you're dead, like some of them do teach. And I say, no. I mean, the Spirit is in me who identifies or witnesses to my human spirit that I am a child of God. That's Romans eight fifteen and 16. And so if I know I'm a child of God, the Holy Spirit is given to me as a pledge, and I know, therefore, that this body that i groan grown in now – And long to be with my Father face to face. Long to be with my Lord face to face. Long to be in heaven in my resurrection body more than anything. I think the older we get, the more we mature. We want it more than anything. That we know in confidence it is to be true. And that's wonderful. But Paul doesn't stop there. It's not a but like, all right, now don't get too happy. (laughs) It's a but like, now no... That while you're in in this, you are in this body and you are in this world, and this is a wonderful thing that God has done in this age, who has given us all the blessings of heaven and left us in a place that's not heaven. He left us on earth. and It's all the blessings of the end before you're there. It's all the blessings, not all the blessings, say the spiritual blessings of heaven before you get there. And then so he continues in verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that, well, we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So whether we're in heaven or here on earth... Our ambition is to be pleasing to Him. Notice in verse 8, we are of good courage. We have the courage, our faith gives us the courage, to live absent from the Lord, but walking by faith, meaning with the Lord. And so what does it mean to walk with the Lord? It means to be like Him. And we walk by the Spirit. The Spirit is mentioned here. And the walking by the Spirit is walking in the newness of life, meaning that we're like Him. And if we're like Him, we're walking with Him. But we have to do that by faith and we have to have the courage to do it by faith. And all of that comes together here now where it comes to this crescendo at verse 10 where at this peak where Paul says, Now look, all of this you've done in faith and courage, even though you're absent from the Lord, when you're face to face with Him, He's going to judge you for what you've done. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body to what he has done, whether good or bad. I said same word deeds. It's a real common Greek word, ergon. Um, Deeds in the body. In this body, what we have done. And that is Fruit. So the fruit comes from the good tree. When you're baptized by the Spirit, by faith in Christ, you were made by the grace of God into a good tree. You are grafted to the vine who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a branch. And that branch must bear fruit. And so, and then he says in verse 11, you should always put this in with verse 10, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We manifest ourselves in the fear of the Lord. Because Paul knows that we're going to be judged by Christ too. We're not just teaching this. <clears throat> we're going to fall under the same du- judgment. So this, these deeds, this work, what is it? Invent something. So let's get back to the beginning here. I'll, I've just got a minute. The beginning of today, when our sound didn't work <laughs> stuff. Uh, you know, you invented the microchip. You invented the – Al Gore invented the Internet, right? does not everybody said that? I don't know why. why I can't, or don't even know where that came from. But, you know, so you get to heaven and God's like, nice job, you cured cancer. Uh, who's the guy, Fleming? The guy who uh, accidentally found – because one of the ways to get a great invention is to be lucky – so, uh, but not in every case. You invented penicillin. Thanks. Nice job. Are those the things that God is going to be concerned about? I don't think he's going to care about them at all. God's going to be concerned about fruit. And if we had a passage that told us what divine fruit was, then we'd be all set. And we do. but I, I am out of time. You know it in Galatians 5:22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is. The top one is love. The first one listed is love. And all the others flow from that word agape. We know this because you compare it to other passages on love. And those same things show up over and over. That peace, that patience, that goodness, that kindness, that faithfulness, that self-control. That uh, I always miss one. They are, and and all of it flows from divine love. Why does God want us to be kind and at peace and have love? Why does he want this for us? Because he wants us to be blessed. He doesn't want us judged. He wants us blessed. And you're blessed when you're like him. It doesn't matter what you're doing. The work itself doesn't matter. And, and it's a wonderful thing to learn And because if you are, of, say, of the ambitious type, you're in a very ambitious person and you think, well, I've got to do something great with my life. And let's say you never have the opportunity to do it. You worked hard, you tried hard, but nothing worked out. Your business has failed. Your house, you couldn't pay your mortgage, you lost a house. You, 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 Your whole neighborhood went kaput. There's a whole bunch of reports out lately from economists that say 2024 is going to be like the Great Depression because this big bubble of stimulus and borrowing money and great big deficits is going to explode. I don't know if that's true. His predictions are never uh, ironclad. But what if it is? People who want ambitious type who want to do great things with their lives, know this, that God has great things for your life. And they are his fruit. So you've got to, what we have to do is have the repentance that is a change of heart through and through. Not just words, but a change of heart that produces different behavior. And that behavior and that thinking is God's. What God, the greatest blessing in life is to be like God, whatever you're doing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. For your word, thank you for all things. Help us, Father, to show us how to fix these sound issues that we keep, that keep propping up. I mean, if I can't call sound people, I can call you. So help us, Father, to uh, see what we need to do. But more importantly, help us all to see what we need to do in terms of that great word, repentance, to be able to be more like you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.